And I'm excited that you are here uh, for week one, the kickoff of our series called How to Pick a Fight. And I think this is going to be an intriguing conversation for all of us. I will say this is a bit of an audible. Uh, so I knew coming into October, I wanted to speak on relationships and some of the dynamics uh, that we would have. But originally, uh, we weren't going to do this series. Uh, initially, the series that I uh, wrote for this month was called How to Hug a Vampire. And the subtitle was Loving the People Who Suck the Life Out of You. <laughs> and I think that's still a conversation we ought to have because... Well, we all have manipulators and narcissists and overly critical and overly needy people in our lives. And so maybe we can circle back on that. But in this series, we, we wanna talk about relational tension and strife and the fact that every single one of us lives in a world full of conflict and we go to work in companies full of conflict and we live within homes full of conflict and neighborhoods. It's, it's all around us. And the question is, is there an approach to this uh, that would honor God? And does God speak to relational strife in a way that is helpful, in a way that would be uh, beneficial to our lives? And no, uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, this is a great conversation for you to be a part of because you can actually benefit from this conversation and not be a Christian. However, if you do choose to place your faith in Jesus Christ and you begin to open up the pages of scripture, what you're going to discover is God's word is relevant. It's living, it's active, and it has a way of instructing and guiding our lives also that we can get the most out of the life Jesus died to give us. And so we're, we're thrilled that you would join us in this conversation. And I will say, uh, when I was thinking about this series, how to pick a fight, the art of conflict, I couldn't help but think of some of my favorite movies growing up. Two of my favorite movies uh, were The Karate Kid and Rocky. Now wave at me if those are just some of your favorites. I loved Rocky, I loved Karate Kid. And recently I was thinking, what was it about these movies that I appreciated the most? What was it that drew me in? I think one, I'm a sucker for a good fight action movie. I think two, I love a good underdog story. But as I was thinking about this, it became clear uh, the two favorite characters of mine in these movies are not the main characters. My favorite character in Rocky isn't Rocky. My favorite character in The Karate Kid isn't Daniel. My two favorite characters are Mickey and Mr. Miyagi. These guys were nuts and they were fascinating and they had such an unorthodox approach to preparing their fighters for their big moment. And so Mr. Miyagi would have uh, Daniel uh, raising a bonsai tree and washing a car. And he's sitting out there, wax on, wax off. How does this help me beat up the bully who's trying to knock my head off? Or, or Mickey would have, you know, Rocky, you know, eating raw eggs and punching frozen slabs of meat and chasing the chicken. And again, it's like, how is this going to help me beat this Russian giant? And what I find in that movie, it's that the unorthodox approach in many ways sets them up for their success. And I get the feeling this series is going to feel like that. What we're gonna look at is certainly an unorthodox approach to fighting. This is God's way of handling conflict and it is certainly different than what we see in the world around us. In many ways, you could call this the Southpaw stance. If you're a boxing fan, you know that the dominant standard traditional stance is with your left foot forward positioning your right hand to land the blow. But a southpaw, pun intended, actually 
leans in with their right foot forward and they begin in that direction. And it's an unorthodox approach to fighting if you've ever watched boxing. And what they say is if a, a, you know, a boxer and the majority of them are traditional stance, anytime they go against a southpaw, they have to completely change their fighting strategy because of the unorthodox approach that their opponent has. And I say all that, and there's probably too much information about boxing, but nonetheless, I say all that because I do think when we approach conflict, the way in which God instructs us, I think it's unorthodox. And I think what happens is, is over time, gradually, those around us who we're in relationship with, they too have to adjust their approach uh, to the conflict that they're in with us. And my question is, is what would it look like if we just started taking our cues from Scripture? all to where we could fight differently. Also, we could, you know, build healthier relationships. And maybe just maybe our example uh, would influence others to approach conflict in the same way. And so that is this series. And I got to tell you, on the front end, this may be one of the most annoying sermons you will ever hear me preach. So, so just know, you can look at your neighbor right now and just go, hey, heads up, uh, this could be annoying. Because what we're going to talk about today, it, it's coming for every single one of us. Jesus spoke a great deal about relationships. In fact, the overarching theme of scripture has this relational emphasis on it. And Jesus at one time is giving his most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he lays out what are called the Beatitudes. And he makes these statements around this idea of being blessed. And he says, blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And with each statement comes a clarifying statement. And watch this one. He says, and blessed are the peacemakers. Now watch this clarifying statement. For they will be called children of God. Essentially, Jesus is gathering some people together and he says, hey, listen, just so we're all clear, one of the surest ways that you can tell you're going to heaven and one of the surest ways that you know that that person is a child of God is, well, they're a peacemaker. They live a life that infuses peace into the situations that they're in. It is a calling card for the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I think there's different approaches to this. And I think our world is in desperate need of peace. And I think there's three categories of people. I think one, there are peace breakers, which we all know who these people are. They're obvious, they're disruptive, they're destructive, they're gossipers, liars, they're hate-filled. And everywhere they go, they disrupt and create division. We all know who the peace breakers are. And then there are peace fakers, which I think these ones, uh, this category of people actually tend to be the most harmful because they go undetected and their damaging effect is subtle, uh, but it just plays out over long periods of time undetected. Because what makes a person a peace faker is they have peace within their language, but not peace within their life. And so they secretly and subtly operate in very dysfunctional ways that are harmful to our relationships. But then there are peacemakers. And to be clear, to be a peacemaker isn't to say, hey, you just go around pacifying every situation. To be a peacemaker isn't to say that your life is always harmonious and no problems. It's not to say that you don't ever deal with a challenge or deal with a mess. No, to be a peacemaker says you live courageously, 
authentically, gently, right? You are attentive, uh, attentive to those around you and you are intentional in your interactions. And at times you lean into the tension and at times you lean into the mess and you do not run away from conflict because you've discovered if you run away from conflict, you'll be running your entire life. And so you learn to develop a posture and a mindset and a character that positions you uh, to be a peacemaker in the world around us. And scripture is constantly nudging us towards, hey, be better in your relationships. Operate in this way and it'll benefit the relationships in your life. And I think the reason for that, in fact, sociologists would even agree to this, is the quality of your life is directly influenced by the quality of your relationships. And so if you wanna have a better life, one of the best things you can do is focus on building better relationships. And so there's a great deal of emphasis in scripture about this. And one time the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia and he's addressing some of the dysfunction that they're experiencing in the church because every church is filled with real people with real problems, right? And he says this to them. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, so again, he's creating this family context. Hey, you who are a part of this faith, you who are children of God, you who are my brothers and sisters. Hey, we're all called to be peacemakers if we're in this family. He says, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. He's saying every single one of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ have discovered this remarkable, unwarranted, undeserved, but life-altering freedom in Christ. And what he's saying is wise are those who don't leverage this for their own personal benefit or gain, but they leverage this freedom in Christ to serve faithfully and to walk humbly. And in that, he then follows it up and he says, for... The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a statement Jesus made because Jesus knew he was so brilliant and he boiled it down to its simplest form. And I think Jesus came saying, folks, we could turn the world upside down if we could just get people to love the person next to them as much as they love themselves. If we could just get that right, my goodness, we'd be better off as a people. And then he says this. So if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He, he said, hey, you're surrounded by this cultural norm that people mismanage situations and they don't know how to operate in conflict and they don't know how to operate when there's relational strife. And what they do is they start to bite and attack and devour each other. And he's saying, no, don't participate in that. Because what happens is, is when you participate, you duplicate. All you do is pass on the dysfunction. All you do is give a dead bird wings. All you do is create more drama. No, no, you don't participate because if you participate in that type of behavior and you communicate in that fashion, just know it's going to circle back on you. If you bite, well, just know it's gonna devour. It's amazing. And what scripture's trying to get us to understand is this is not easy, but it's worth it. And a life of peace is something that God says, I want you to aim for that. And I would say this about peace. Peace is the skillful management of conflict. But know this, that before it's a skill set, peace has to become a mindset. 
It's saying, hey, I've got to take the time to condition my thinking around this idea of peace. What is God after? What's the priority here? What's the purpose of peace? Why does Jesus come identifying himself as the Prince of Peace? And how would it change my life? And how would it inform my decisions if I followed in the footsteps of Christ as the Prince of Peace, mimicking his behavior and his decisions? And it's that mindset. It's the more you condition the way you think about this that begins to produce a skill set, and it informs your behaviors and your decisions. And I know that when you start talking about this, there will be some in the room who will say, well, yeah, but I would just rather not. Can't we just not have any conflict and know this? The only way to eliminate conflict is to eliminate relationships. So if you don't wanna have any conflict in your life, well, you might as well buy a private island and just go live a stranded, isolated life. You can do what Tom Hanks did and you can make a volleyball your best friend and you can just get lost and try to survive on your own because here's the deal. If you're going to be in relationships, authentic, genuine, truthful relationships that are healthy and thriving, well, there's going to be conflict because people are people. You know, in Proverbs, the writer is so creative at times in leading us gently into an idea. In chapter 14, he says this, check it out. He says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but from the strength of an ox come abundant harvest. And what he's saying is like, hey, listen, all the farmers, you get this, right? Like where there are no oxen, the manger's clean. There's no mess to clean up. But every farmer knows that the mess is worth it because of the benefit and the value add that an ox has to raising crops. And so the, the farmer looks at the ox and says, I'm okay with the mess because I see the benefits of what they bring to the table. And the writers of Proverbs are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how you should think about relationships. Because where there are people, there will be problems. But wise are those who recognize that despite the mess and despite the tension and despite the conflict that comes with relationships, the value add, the beauty, the progress, the, just the fulfillment that comes with relationships, it so far outweighs the tension that often comes with relationships. And so folks, tuck this one away. It is better to resolve a conflict than it is to dissolve a relationship. It is better to resolve a conflict than it is to dissolve a relationship. Now know this, when I'm speaking about conflict in this series, I am discussing the broad general sense of the idea that every single one of us in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, companies, even within churches, we develop tension at times in our relationships. And some of you will say, well, there are actually some relationships that I need to Dissolve. This is a toxic relationship. This is an abusive relationship. And I would say, if I knew the details of your situation, there's a good chance I would agree with you. I'm not talking about abusive relationships. I'm talking about the day-to-day -day conflicts that we often find ourselves in. Now, this is where the conversation is going to turn towards annoyance. Because I think scripture begins to prompt us, hey, when it comes to this, approach it differently. And know this, the best time to win a fight is before it starts. Now, how we're defining win is not, hey, you win by getting your way. You win by dominating the other person. No, no, no. We define the win by 
resolved conflict, harmony, peace, greater levels of trust. You know, that's kind of the win in, the, in, in mind. And, and I think it's recognizing that God's word instructs us, hey, before you engage, before you walk into that boardroom with an agenda, knowing that there's an agenda coming your way, there's some things you can do on the front end. Hey, hey, before you walk into that living room and have that heated conversation, just know there's some things that you can do before you enter. Hey, just know before you go to school tomorrow, there might be some things on the front end that you can do first before you enter. That the best time to win a fight is before it begins. And Jesus's little brother, James, he was curious about this idea of conflict. And I love James. And every time I speak on James, I make the same joke over and over again. So for the next 25 years, you're probably gonna hear this. I think James is one of the greatest proofs that Jesus was the son of God. Because Jesus was James's older brother. And James believed that his older brother was God. Now, think about what would you have to do for one of your siblings to look at you and think, I think you're God. That's pretty impressive. James looked at his older brother and was like, I'll worship you for the rest of my life. That's astounding. And James would look at the conflicts around him the same way we look at conflicts around us. And he was, he was curious as to what's really driving this. Have you ever looked at some of the situations you're a part of or maybe some of the situations taken about in our world and our communities and thought, what's behind this? What's beneath the surface that continues to cause this over and over again? And in chapter four, verse one, he asked this question. He says, folks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Like if you were to sit down right now and you pull out a pen and pad and you just start to make a list. Hey, what is it that's causing the fights? I mean, every single one of us can make an exhaustive list. Well, it's her. Homegirl's nuts. Or it's him. He's a maniac. He's like the guy on the video. He's clearly annoying, right? Or it's this or it's that. We would all have a list, right? It's all these things taking place about us that just continue to create problems in our life. But James follows up this question with a clarifying question. And watch what he does. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle deep within you? And see, this is where it begins to shift. Because when it comes to conflict and when it comes to relational strife and when it comes to tension that we all face daily, every single one of us in our broken nature and all, oftentimes in our cowardly nature, uh, we focus on external matters. It's him, it's her, it's this, it's that. And James is saying, yeah, but wise are those who have the courage to look internally and not just externally. Wise are those who pump the brakes and say, hey, is there anything in my life that beneath the surface is creating an agitation, that beneath the surface is creating some unpleasant behavior in and through my life? James is saying, hey, every single one of us has a lot going on. Like you have a lot going on. You are a complicated concoction. And I am a complicated concoction. You ever thought about all the thoughts, emotions, tendencies, behaviors, habits that you manage daily simultaneously? 
Like if we were to put a big kettle up here and we were to mix up the concoction that makes you you or makes me me, you'd have to put some pride in there. You'd have to put some confusion in there. You'd have to put some fear, maybe some lust, some impatience, some annoyance. You'd have to put some insecurity in there, maybe a competitive spirit, right? Some sarcasm in there and you stir it up. Well, folks, that's you or that's me. And every single day we walk from situation to situation as a complicated concoction, managing all this stuff that is happening within us. And, and even in the seasons where it's like, man, I'm, I'm batting 900 right now. One of those things gets out of check and it starts to manifest itself dysfunctionally in your life. This is hard stuff. But James is saying, the people with the healthiest relationships, the people who build wonderful marriages and great families, the people who have just great working relationships with their coworkers and build great companies, they approach this differently because they understand that the wars around us are often caused by the wars within us. It's just saying, if you would just pump the brakes and before you go address somebody else, would you assess yourself? Because the best time to win a fight is before it begins. James is saying, what would happen if you became the type of person that before you went and confronted somebody, you just courageously and honestly assessed yourself. God, is there anything in my life that I need to take ownership of? Is there anything that I'm coming up short that is causing some of these dynamics? Because what will happen is, is you will enter into the ring and you step into the conflict and there your opponent stands ready to land some blows. And you start out the conversation, hey, before we get started, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this tension that you and I have in our relationship. And I gotta say, I owe you an apology. And I need to ask you for your forgiveness because I'm realizing there's some things that I'm doing that are coming up short. And here's my commitment to be better. That's an unorthodox way of fighting. Before you know it, your opponent's gonna be like, hey, that was my ammunition. You just stole all of my material. And what you would find is it would reposture. It would reposture the relationship. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that's ridiculous. And I get it. But wouldn't you want to be a part of a relationship with those type of people? The type of person who just owns their mistakes, the type of person who just steps into a situation like, hey, I've been thinking and assessing myself internally. And I've got some things to address personally. And here is the most annoying statement I'm going to make all day. You are the one thing all of your conflicts have in common. It's annoying, right? You are the one thing all of your problems have in common. And here's the deal. Wherever you go, there you are. And I know some will think, well, that, that is super annoying. It is, it is super frustrating. But if you develop a growth mindset, and if you lean into what Scripture's calling us to, you will realize, well, if I'm the one common denominator in all of my conflicts, that means I'm the one thing that can have the biggest impact on changing my circumstances, changing my relationships, and moving things towards a God-honoring life of healthy stability. It comes with more influence uh, than you think. And it's just recognizing, hey, I've got to begin leaning in to these matters. And I've said for years, I've heard people say it, I've repeated it. And it's the statement, you are either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. You ever heard this? And I've said this, and 
over the years, in fact, even recently, I'm like, I don't know if I fully agree with that statement. And my issue is with the first half of it. Because here's the deal. We are all part of the problem. The question is, will we be part of the solution? Which, if someone hasn't told you this week, you're not perfect. And if someone hasn't informed you as well, as your pastor, not perfect. There's not a single person in here uh, who has reached that standard. In fact, that's why the church exists, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all need a savior who is perfect, who can fill in the gaps in our life. That church should just be a place of authentic community where every single one of us just recognizes, hey, I am a part of a faulty humanity and I carry my own faults and my own deficiencies. And I, at times, contribute uh, to problems and issues around me and I need to take responsibility. And the hard thing about the responsibility conversation is we keep score. And so the game's the seven and you're looking at your opponent and it's like, he's got seven, I've got three. They're more responsible. And that might be true, but here's the deal. Whether you are more responsible or less responsible for the problem, you are still responsible. And it's just learned to say, hey, somewhere in here is a representation of my faulty, faulty humanity. Where can I take ownership? Where can I be responsible? Because what we find is our, our temptation is to place blame. Like if you were to look at the, the story of creation in the book of Genesis, Genesis opens up, chapter one, chapter two, God is laying out his wonderful, majestic, magnificent, perfect creation. It was good, it was beautiful, it was brilliant. And then chapter three comes and we see sin entering the world and the fall of humanity. And if you were to ask the question, hey, what were the early signs of sin and brokenness in the world? What were the early symptoms of sin and brokenness in humanity? What you find is the two earliest symptoms were shame and blame. Sin enters the world, and what do Adam and Eve do? They go hiding, they cover themselves up because they are covered in shame. And that's why we say here often, as a church, we don't exist to place shame onto people. We exist to get shame off of people because Jesus is so great, your sin is no match for his grace and his grace has robbed you of your shame. Jesus isn't holding out on his grace, so stop holding on to your shame. But in addition to that, there's this issue of blame. God comes to Adam, he's like, Adam, what happened? And immediately, I mean, moments into their new normal, Adam's like, it wasn't me, it was her, who you gave me, right? He blames Eve and he blames God. To which then God looks to Eve and Eve's like, it wasn't me, it was the snake. To which God then looks at the snake and he didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> oh, I nailed it. I actually stole that joke from one of our security guards. But I mean, moments into the world being broken by sin, blame is one of our first tendencies. And it's just so you know, God shows up on the scene. He's like, oh, I'm gonna make this right. I'm going to redeem all this. 
And so just know in God's great redemptive plan of setting things back to the way they should be, blame at some point gets addressed in all of us. So we might as well reverse engineer our future into our present. Let's start addressing the issue of blame. Because here's what I'm convinced of. Blame is a lazy person's way of making sense out of chaos. It's so easy. I mean, it's so much of an easier route at times just to place blame. It comes with less time, less effort, less honesty. I mean, it just, less friction at times, just, just blame somebody else. And here's the problem with the blame conversation. Every single one of us, myself included, is going to be tempted into this tendency. It makes me think of recently, I attended one of our uh, life groups here at, at Northview. And there's groups at all of our campuses where we're just blessed with leaders who are just gathering people together all around uh, our campuses. And on Tuesday mornings here at the Carmel campus in the barn is a group of men who have been meeting for years. And they gather and they always discuss the Bible and they pray together and talk about life. And so recently I decided, hey, I'm gonna pop into that Tuesday morning Bible study. And, and I'm telling you, I walked in and I thought to myself, this might be one of the highest concentrated groups of just godly men in our church. I mean, the group of men in that room is like, these are legends within our church stories. These are individuals who've been here for 20, 30 years who just love the Lord, who are godly and wise. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, I wish every man in our church would attend this Bible study. And I'm sitting around the table and I'm getting to hear them discuss things and uh, just, man, so much wisdom in the room. And one of the leaders, when said, hey, Pastor Cedar, while you're here, uh, there's a text that I would love to hear your thoughts on. Could you help us better understand the text where Jesus says, don't address the speck in someone else's eye, uh, deal with your own plank that is in your eye. He said, can you help us understand that? And I said, you know, what's, what's interesting is when I've come to that passage in scripture, I oftentimes think this might be the one passage you can't preach on. Because the moment I start preaching on the plank in your eye, I'm guilty of the text. I'm dealing with your speck rather than my plank. But what Jesus is saying is like, just know the sin in your life is a bigger problem for you than the sin in someone else's life. And it's just learn to say, okay, I have to deal with this. And James is saying, there's unmet desires, unfulfilled expectations, agitations of the soul, and the wars within you, they're causing some wars around you. And he follows it up and watch what he says. He says, see, you desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. He's basically using extreme language to drive home an idea. Every single one of us to some degree isn't getting our way. And we want things to be playing out differently. And that is creating an agitation in the soul. And I think one of the best things we can do is to name why you're upset. Because this is what happens is, is we go into conversations unprepared where we haven't thought through, hey, what is actually going on inside me? Why am I upset? And then we get into a room or an interaction and we spin out and we wound each other with our words and we just go the extra mile on all kinds of topics because we haven't taken time to think, what is it that I'm really wrestling with here and why am I upset? And here's the deal. 
Two things happen when you name it. One, it loses its power and we lose our excuse. Sometimes it's just saying, what is it in me? Well, maybe I, I just feel taken for granted or maybe I feel disrespected or you embarrassed me in front of my peers or you broke trust and didn't honor your word. Like what is it deep inside of you that's saying, hey, I, I have an unmet expectation and it's coming out. I think every single one of us is going to bump into this reality. And know this, life at some point, it's going to jolt you. Life is gonna come with a bump in the road. It's gonna come with a disruption. And it makes you think of the time the waitress always brings the table, uh, the drink to your table and someone bumps the table. What happens to your drink? It spills over. And, and every single one of us, we've got all this stuff bottled up in us. And at some point, at unexpected times, life is gonna jolt you. And here's what we discover. What's in you is going to come out of you regardless of who's around you. And so oh, annoyance came out, impatience came out, sarcasm came out, irritation came out, and it starts to come out and say, hey, if I don't learn to identify these things, what's in me is going to come out of me regardless of who's around me. And it makes me think of a few years ago, uh, Floyd Mayweather, boxing legend, uh, was facing off against Conor McGregor, who is a UFC legend. And the fight was getting all this publicity and moments before the fight, I was watching this interview with Floyd Mayweather. And the guy interviewing him said, hey, when you step into the ring, what's going through your mind? And Floyd Mayweather said, when I step into the ring, I'm not paying attention to the fans. I'm not paying attention to the media. I'm not even looking at my opponent. When I step into the ring, I'm paying attention to the announcer. And the guy interviewing him said, help me understand what you're, you're saying. And he says, I pay attention to the announcer because in that moment, the announcer reminds me of who I am, who is in this corner. And so he talks about, hey, in this moment, like standing undefeated, the undisputed champion of the world with a record of 31 and 0, this many by knockouts, wearing gold trunks and coming from this city. And he lays out the resume and he says, in that moment, I need to be reminded who's in this corner. And I think sometimes courageous are those and wise are those and healthy are those who say, God, before I step into the ring, would you remind me of who's in this corner? Not to gas me up, not to fill me with arrogance, but what would it look like to say, hey, in this corner, there's some pride. In this corner, there's some fear. In this corner, there's some confusion. In this corner, there's some just impatience. I know who's in this corner. And again, the best time to win a fight is before it begins. And it's just learn to say, hey, I, I've done the hard work internally. I know who's in this corner. And if you watch the, the preparation for a fight, what you find is when the night comes, at most, a boxer stands in the ring with his opponent for 12 rounds. The night's done in a couple of hours but it takes 12 to 18 months of preparing for that fight. And in those 12 to 18 months, they don't throw a single punch at their opponent. They beat up on themselves for 12 to 18 months. And I'm just saying, like God's saying, yeah, what would happen if you were harder on yourself than you were on others? 
What would happen if you assessed yourself before addressing others? Because here's the principle in scripture. Ownership, it separates the overwhelmed from the overcomer. Because if everything is everyone else's fault and all you do is blame shift and scapegoat, you're powerless. Because everything else is in someone else's control, there's nothing you can dictate or influence. But when you recognize, oh, I hate to admit it. I'm the one thing all of my problems have in common. And knowing that, I can assess things and improve in some areas, and I can start to overcome the situation. And James is saying, it's these unmet desires that are, you're not getting your way, and it's spilling into your relationships. And maybe here's the question we should all consider. Who in your life is suffering because you aren't getting your way? Who in your life is suffering because you aren't getting your way? And James, he clarifies what he's getting at. He said, here's the problem. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. He's saying, you're, you're trying to approach your relationships without allowing God to weigh in on the matter. And what scripture is saying, the Bible isn't saying we should downplay our problems. The Bible is saying we shouldn't downplay our God. It's saying, hey, God can speak to this matter and God can weigh in on this. And so a lot of times it's going to God with an issue before you go to anybody else. That's what prayer is. Prayer is processing your problems with God. Worry is processing your problems with yourself. And it's just saying, okay, God, there's some unmet desires. I'm not getting my way. Hey, these wars within me are causing wars around me. God, would you just lean in? Would you instruct and inform? God, would maybe you correct where I'm wrong and give me wisdom as to how to proceed? Because there's things that I'm desiring and it's playing out in dysfunctional ways. So maybe the next time, before you go tell your spouse you wish they made more money, maybe you should just say, God, I, I know you know the financial state of our family. And I know you know how hard we're working to figure this out. God, would you extend grace and favor to our careers and would you help us navigate this season of life well? Or, or before the, the next time you go tell your kid that you wish they were a better athlete or better at school, God, would you help me be the type of parent that this kid needs? And God, would you help us develop a discipline that leverages the resources that are available to help them succeed? God, would you give me patience? And would you give me energy? And would you surround them with the right faculty also that they can thrive? Again, it, it's so different. It changes your posture. Hey, God, would you help me weigh in on this? And what I've discovered is people who don't allow God to fight for them eventually end up fighting with God. It's Adam in the garden. It's either her fault, and if it's not her fault, it's your fault. And what happens is we don't involve God, and then after things play out in an undesirable way, suddenly we're, we're shaking our fists at the heavens. God, why did you allow this? I know this. We have three options. You can turn inward. You can suppress. You can isolate. You can just cut off all relationships, which is super harmful and disruptive to your well-being. You can turn outward and you can lash out and you can cast blame onto other people or you can turn upward. God, I, I just again find myself at the foot of the cross humbly asking for your grace to work in my life. Will you help me in this matter? And so he then closes the passage and he says, the problem is, is when you ask, 
You do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And, and I mean, James is like, dude, let us off the hook. He just keeps driving beneath the surface. And he's saying, folks, just, just know, God knows why you're doing what you're doing. And he will assess your motives. And I'm telling you, the people who have healthy relationships, they do the hard work of just going there. What's the unfulfilled desires? What are the motives that are not honoring to God? Where can I take responsibility? I know this, this is hard stuff, but taking responsibility comes with tremendous benefits to our relationships. One, taking responsibility sets an example, which my goodness, our world needs an example. And as the people of God, please be the example, not the extremist. The world is full of those. We need examples. Two, it solidifies relationships. Again, conflict is messy. This isn't cute, sweet, and neat. It takes time, effort, patience, due diligence, authenticity. But you walk through something with somebody and you get to the other side of it and it's like, I'm not saying I enjoyed it, but I do recognize that this relationship is now stronger because we went through something together. Three, it builds credibility. See, here's where we're getting it wrong. We're so afraid in our culture to admit a mistake because we don't wanna give up position or leverage. If I acknowledge my mistake, I give up leverage in the argument. And here's the thing, we, we really only have two options. You can either make mistakes or you can fake perfection. And the first will give you a lesson and the second will get you stressing. Right, if you make mistakes, be the type of person who assesses the mistakes. God, where can I learn from this? How can I be better? How can I own it? But if you fake perfection, it's gonna eat you up because every single day you're gonna live knowing the truth and your spouse is gonna know the truth and your kids are gonna know the truth and you're gonna take on an unnecessary stress where you're trying to project something you're not. And God, no, 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 no. Like, community of faith, believers, Every single one of us who recognize our need for grace, nah, we, we're all faulty individuals. We all make mistakes. And so we learn to do that. And when you do that, it builds credibility because people find you more trustworthy. Four, it provides learning because you have to give access if you want to gain access. And so what happens is, is you come into a situation and it doesn't happen immediately. You gotta trust the process. But you take ownership of your shortcomings. You take ownership of your faults. Hey, here's where I was wrong. Here's where I'm coming up short. Here's where I need to ask for forgiveness. And eventually, you know what's gonna happen? The person on the other side is gonna be like, yeah, me too. I was embarrassed and I felt like you disrespected me in front of my peers. And in that moment, you're going to learn. Oh, I had no idea. That's where you were coming from in that situation. That's so insightful. I'm telling you, taking responsibility provides learning. Five, it improves your position. Not to give you power over somebody, but you move from an enemy to an ally. And if you do it consistently long enough, you actually take on leadership and influence, which the world dr drastically needs. But lastly, it solves problems. People who take responsibility, it solves problems. So let's just, Put it into a basic equation, A plus B equals C. And let's say the person in your life who you're fighting with is more responsible for the issue. All right, we agree on that. Let's put it into an equation. 
Let's say they own 75% of the issue. 75 plus blank equals 100%. And here's the deal. You can't solve this problem without your portion. And I know what you're thinking. That's nonsense. But folks, that's the gospel. I mean, think about that equation. If there was ever a person who said, 100% your fault, 0% mine, it was Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, humanity 100%, me 0%. And here's the gospel message. When humanity sinned, God opted for forgiveness, not for fairness. What makes Jesus the ultimate game changer is he's the ultimate blame taker. He called sin, sin, said, give me that cross. And he marched to Golgotha's hill and he took responsibility. And again, don't you wanna be in a relationship with someone like that? I mean, this is what makes Jesus so appealing. This guy is sinless and perfect. Yet he's so full of ownership and responsibility. And what Jesus shows us is the more responsibility you take, the more of a difference you can make. Because in the end, ownership separates the overwhelmed from the overcomer. And my prayer is what would it look like for every single one of us to just say, God, would you help me? And here's gonna be the temptation. You're gonna get in the car and you're gonna wanna weaponize this conversation. You're gonna look at your spouse or your kids and be like, whew, Lord knew you needed to be here today. <laughs> Man, he had your number from the moment you walked in. And what would happen if we all just said, hey, you're off the hook. God's speaking to me on this one. I can be better. I think the church would shine. I think our, health, our marriages would thrive. Our children would thrive. Our community would take notice. That's different. And I wanna be a part of that, amen.